You may be seated. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. I'll be reading verses 30 through 40. Hebrews 11, verses 30 through 40. This is what God says. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weaknesses were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. <clears throat> May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his word. Why are there so few heroes anymore? Back in the mid-1950s, John F. Kennedy wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning book. It was a collection of brief biographical sketches about men from the political arena in this country. It's an inspirational book that tells the lives and the work of some of the greatest political heroes that this country has produced. Men like John Quincy Adams and Daniel Webster and Sam Houston and Robert Taft. An interesting thing about this book is how different all these men were from one another. They went into politics for different reasons. They differed greatly in natural abilities. Some were liberals, some were conservatives, some were likable, and some were really hard to get along with. But as interesting as these differences are, what all of these men had in common and what earned them the respect and the admiration of John F. Kennedy and made them the subjects of his book was courage. The title 
of his book was Profiles in Courage. Courage is a virtue that is indispensable to the making of a true hero. It implies firmness of mind and will in the face of extreme difficulties and opposition. And it is a virtue that is conspicuous by its absence in our society today, not only in the political arena, but also in the church. That's why we have so few heroes today. So few of us are courageous. All of the heroes of the faith mentioned in our text this morning had courage. They were very different from one another. They came from different walks of life. They varied greatly in their natural abilities. Some achieved a a measure of worldly success and uh, some did not. Some were likable and some were hard to get along with. But they all had courage. They all demonstrated firmness of mind and will in the face of extreme difficulties and opposition. That's what makes them heroes. Now, when you read a book like Profiles in Courage, or you read about the lives of the people mentioned here in Hebrews 11:30 through 40, you may think that, well, these were extraordinary people. That we just don't have in us what they had in them. That somehow they just must have been braver, stronger people than we are. Not so. Because JFK's conclusion to his book is this. He says, to be courageous These stories make clear requires no exceptional qualifications, no magic formula, no special combination of time, place, and circumstance. It is an opportunity that sooner or later is presented to us all. It is an opportunity that sooner or later is presented to us all. The age of heroes is not over as long as we have opportunities to demonstrate courage, to demonstrate firmness of mind and will in the face of extreme difficulties and opposition. And for those of us who live by faith, who live according to the revealed word of God, opportunities abound. Because to live by faith takes courage. Why does it take courage to live by faith? Our text this morning suggests at least two reasons. The first reason that it takes courage to live by faith is because of the extreme difficulties we must face, especially our own weaknesses. Remember, biblical faith is not just believing anything you want to believe. It's believing and acting on the revealed word of God. 
And when you look closely at what the word of God requires of us as Christians, when you look very closely at what the word says Christians' lives are supposed to look at, look like, it's, it's easy to become discouraged to just throw up our hands and say, what's the use? I can't do that. It won't work. It's impossible. Of course, when we say that, what we mean is that we can't do what God asks us to do because we are weak. That what God asks of us is bound to fail because of our weaknesses. When we say it's impossible, what we mean is it's impossible for us. And in this, we are absolutely right. It is impossible to live by faith in our own strength. That's why it takes courage to live by faith. It takes courage to do what God asks us to do when we know we can't do that. It takes courage to do what God asks us to do when we know from our limited perspective that that's not going to work. It takes courage to attempt the impossible just because God says so. But that's what the heroes of the faith mentioned in our text this morning did. The Israelites did not overcome Jericho because of their own strength, but because of God's strength. Gideon didn't defeat the Midianites because of his own strength, but because of God's strength. And David did not kill Goliath by his own strength, but by God's strength. These men had the courage to do what God asked them to do even when they knew it couldn't work. Even when they knew that from their limited human perspective, this wasn't going to turn out well. They attempted the impossible simply because God said so. And it's precisely when they acted in spite of their weakness that God supplied his strength and the impossible became possible. A little boy was taken to the ballet for the first time by his mother and after the performance, he asked his mother, why don't they just get taller dancers instead of making them dance on their tiptoes? Well, we might ask, why doesn't God use stronger people to accomplish his purposes instead of using us who are so weak? Well, it's, it's always been God's way to use the weak people of this world to accomplish his purposes. And just as having merely taller dancers would not enhance the beauty of the ballet, but rather diminish it. So just having stronger people accomplishing God's purposes would not enhance the beauty of his purposes, but rather diminish it as well. This, this should be a great encouragement 
to us. Because what it means is that our weaknesses are not necessarily a hindrance to our serving God and even gaining his approval as these heroes of the faith did. All of the heroes of the faith mentioned here by name had serious weaknesses. Just look at them. Rahab was a prostitute. Gideon was timid. Barak was hesitant. Samson was frivolous. Jephthah was rash. David was sensuous. And Samuel was careless. But in spite of these weaknesses, all of these men and women had the courage to do what God asked of them. And it's precisely when they did what God asked of them in their own weakness that God supplied his strength and the impossible became possible. And the same thing is true for the New Testament heroes of the faith. Think of Peter and John, just common fishermen. They, they weren't trained theologians. They, they weren't polished public speakers. And yet, they had to stand before the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious body of the Jews. And they had to give a defense of the gospel. Now, they couldn't do that in their own strength. But because they did what God asked of them in their weakness, God supplied his strength and the impossible became possible. The Apostle Paul, too, talks about all of the many trials that he had to face in his ministry. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and 3, he he, he cries out at one point, he, he says, and, and, and who is equal to such a task? And then he answers his own question by saying, but our competence comes from God. Have you ever thought that your weaknesses were a hindrance to serving God? Think again. They can actually be an advantage if you act courageously and do what God asks you to do in spite of your weakness. That's when God supplies his strength and the impossible becomes possible. The first reason then why it takes courage to live by faith is because of the extreme difficulties we must face, especially our own weaknesses. And the second reason it takes courage to live by faith is because of the opposition we must face. Sometimes we have a tendency to forget that people who live by faith, people who live according to the revealed word of God, and those who don't are going in two different directions in life. And it's inevitable that from time to time, they're going to be knocking heads. And besides this, there is an inbuilt hostility and enmity that exists between those who belong to God 
and those who belong uh, to the world. In Genesis uh, 3.15, God told the devil after he attempted Eve, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And in John 15, verses 18 and 19, Jesus told his disciples, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. That is why the world hates you. And in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, everyone who wants to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. We need to take this seriously. And we have biblical evidence about the extent of this hostility and this enmity that the world has against God's people. Just look at verses 35 through 39. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. I think these verses show the degeneracy of the human spirit into the likeness and image of the devil in the sense that these people were not content with merely putting the people of God to death. They weren't content with merely putting those who lived by faith and by the revealed word of God to death. They had to maximize their pain and suffering as much as they could through torturing them and through exiling them to places where normal people couldn't live. Now, it's easy for us in our society to think that things are not that bad anymore. That perhaps the world's attitude toward us has changed. And I would say that the American experiment has been a rare one. And the people of God have not been opposed. They have not been persecuted. They have not had to suffer as Christians have at other times and in other places in the world. You can think of a book like Fox's Book of Martyrs and go back and look at what the world has done to the people of God over the ages. In Nero's time, they would cover Christians in tar and then light them up as human candles. Or they would wrap them in, human, or in animal skins and then throw them uh, into the cage with a wild animal of some sort so that they could be devoured in that way. In the fifth century uh, after Christ, Telemachus, a simple monk who was just sickened by 
the gladiator games and they're fighting to the death just for the entertainment of the Roman crowds jumped into the arena and he cried out in the name of Christ forbear and the crowd jumped into the arena with him and they tore him to pieces. In the 15th century John Huss was burned at the stake because he would not recant his position that salvation was by grace through faith alone. The night before he was supposed to be burned at the stake, he put his hand over a candle and he couldn't stand the pain. But the next morning, he sang hymns while the flames engulfed him. Again, we are somewhat isolated from this kind of opposition here in our country, but don't you believe that it has gone away? Do you know that more Christians were killed for their faith in the 20th century alone than in all the centuries before that? Not here, not in the United States, but around the world. There is that kind of opposition to God's people. And for that matter, if you really think that the world's attitude towards God's people and God's values as revealed in his word have changed, try taking a public stand against abortion, against pornography, against alternate lifestyles, against materialism, against relativism, the denial of absolute truth. My wife, for a while, worked in a Methodist preschool. This is in the church, mind you. And she was invited to some Bible studies, and she said, well, they were pretty good. Until one day, the issue came up whether you had to believe in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And then they got pretty upset with the person that said, yes, you had to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. So we can get comfortable with the world, but remember that the world will always be antagonistic towards God's people and God's values. Alan Bloom was a professor uh, at the University of uh, Chicago back in the 1990s, early 2000s, and he wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind. Now, he wasn't a Christian. He wasn't talking about denying the truth of the, uh, of the word, of, of God's word, he was writing uh, against people who were denying to, or were trying to deny that there was any absolute truth whatsoever. And he said, at least on academic campuses, the only enemy is the person who is not open to everything. Well, I have news for you. People who live by faith, who live by the revealed word of God, are not open to everything. And therefore, we are the enemy. And that's why it takes courage to live by faith. Because living by faith means we will face opposition. Now, it's, it's thrilling and inspirational to read about the lives of heroes from the past, whether they be from the political arena 
or from the church. I mean, which of us as Americans doesn't thrill at the words of a Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death, or the words of a Nathan Hale, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. And which of us as Christians doesn't thrill at the words of, of Polycarp, a second century Christian who uh, was being burnt at the stake because he would, deny, he would not deny Christ. He said, 80 and six years I have served him, and he has never done me any wrong. How then shall I blaspheme my king and my savior? And which of us doesn't thrill at the words of Martin Luther? Here I stand, I can do no other. Were these people from the past so different from us? Were they just naturally braver and stronger? Were they extraordinary people? No, not at all. They just took the opportunity that presented itself to demonstrate courage, to demonstrate firmness of mind and will in the face of extreme difficulties and opposition. Now, being a hero is not easy. But think of this, people respect and admire courage whether they're for you or against you. The people that John F. Kennedy wrote about in Profiles in Courage were not all on his side and he would not have been on their side. But it was their courage that earned them his respect and admiration and remember what he said in the conclusion of his book, the age of heroes is not over as long as there are opportunities to demonstrate courage, to demonstrate firmness of mind and will in the face of extreme difficulties and opposition. And for us as Christians, for us who live by faith, who live by the revealed word of God, those opportunities will always abound. So if you're into making New Year's resolutions, why not make this one? To live courageously for God. To acknowledge your weaknesses and depend on his strength. To not be intimidated by the opposition of the world. And like these heroes of the faith, with all their serious weaknesses, we too can hope for God's approval of our faith. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we really can't imagine what it must have been like for these people at this time. Father, they had even less experience of your grace in their lives than we did. And yet, Father, you enabled them to live in such a way that they would gain your approval. You enabled them to live by faith, to live according to your revealed word, not as perfect human beings, filled with weaknesses, but still devoted to you and desiring to win that approval. Father, help us to be courageous in the year ahead 
and all the years ahead that you grant to us, that again your church might continue forward and that you may get all of the glory that you so richly deserve for the God that you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.